right, welcome everyone. Today is November 20th, 2015, and this is Christy Balsell speaking. I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action, and I am most privileged today to welcome Dr. Bruce Cohen to our presentation. We're going to be talking today about mitochondrial myopathy. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you. Before we get started, Dr. Cohen, I just wanted to briefly introduce you and then allow you to uh, speak a little bit more about your um, experience as well. But I will just note that Dr. Cohen is currently serving as the Director of Pediatric Neurology and the Director of Neurodevelopmental Science at Akron Children's Hospital. And Dr. Cohen has many, many publications and is really well known within the field of mitochondrial medicine as a clinician who is intuitive with his patients, has a tremendous depth of experience to offer to the patient and research community. And uh, Dr. Cohen, I hope you don't mind being so forward as to say I think you've really been instrumental in pioneering the cures and advancing therapies and that uh, idea of really trying to find ways to help patients with mitochondrial disorders. So it's very fitting that today you would be here to help us define mitochondrial myopathy because um, it seems that there are many people in our community who may have a mitochondrial myopathy but may not even really understand what that classification of that part of the diagnosis may mean. And so we're going to learn a little bit more today about mitochondrial myopathy. I want to tell everybody the direct URL where you can find the slides to accompany today's presentation. It's mitoaction.org, M-I-T-O-A-C-T-I-O-N.org, backslash mitochondrial hyphen myopathy, M-Y-O-P-A-T-H-Y, hyphen slides. So the words mitochondrial myopathy slides with a little dash in between, mitoaction.org backslash mitochondrial dash myopathy dash slides. Those are the slides to accompany today's presentation. And uh, again, if you have any issues, this is Christy speaking, and my email is director at mitoaction.org, and we're always glad to help. So, Dr. Cohen, I, I really flew through your um, your bio. You have a lot more to say about your professional experience and background, but I, I know we're eager to get started on our topic today because it is so important to our patient community. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to you, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Christy, and I want to thank uh, you personally and Mito Action uh, for putting this webinar together, um, the organizational um, Stuff has just been incredible, and, and um, appreciate that my slides look so pretty up on um, your, your website. Um, today, we're going to be talking about mitochondrial myopathy, and some of you may be wondering why are we restricting it to just the muscle disease? And uh, there are a few reasons. Um, number one, when I talk about mitochondrial diseases in general, it ends up being a discussion of you know ten different organ systems, and that gets overwhelming. So sometimes restricting it to one organ system. Uh, makes it a little more manageable. But what we're going to be talking about a little later in the talk is that um, the pharmaceutical industry um, is focusing on specific mitochondrial disease models to try to get their drugs to market. And they've targeted myopathy or muscle disease as one of those models. And we'll be talking about the FDA process for getting drugs approved 
and some of the clinical trials going on in mitochondrial diseases a little later on. So I'm going to move off of slide one and slide two is a picture of Akron Children's Hospital on a beautiful spring day. Um, I think this is the last day in Akron will have um, sunshine and, and grass for a while. Snowstorms um, <laughs> are coming. So we're going to move to slide three. And slide three is labeled, what is a myopathy? And by definition, a myopathy is a muscle disorder, um, meaning any muscle disorder, not restricted to mitochondrial disease. So we're first just talking about myopathy or muscle disorders. And what this means is that the muscle uh, fibers, which normally contract, uh, that allows for movement, uh, don't function normally. Um, and when the muscle fibers involve what we call skeletal muscle, it generally results in weakness. Now, there are three types of muscle in the body. There's skeletal muscle, and that's the muscle around our bones. Um, and uh, there's one exception to, um, you know, skeletal muscle that isn't around our bones, and those are the muscles of the eye, um, which, which help elevate the eye. Um, um, they're the muscles um, in our heart, and that's called cardiac muscle. And there's also smooth muscle, and smooth muscle lines our uh, intestines, it lines our bladder, and it lines our blood vessels. And so the smooth muscle can have a myopathy as well. So um, a myopathy will result in weakness of any of these muscles, um, and in some circumstances, cramps or stiffness. The other important part of the definition is that the weakness is due to a primary process in the muscle itself. Um, so you can certainly have brain disorders that cause muscle weakness. For example, a stroke or brain tumor can cause the muscle to be weak, but it's not the muscle per se that's weak. It's the controlling organ, such as the brain, uh, that causes the weakness. You can have a damaged nerve, which causes a muscle to be weak, but again, it's the pathology in the nerve and not the um, muscle itself uh, to be weak. And finally, uh, loose tendons, um, such as which can occur in diseases like either Danlos syndrome, can cause the apparent muscle apparent muscle weakness. In fact, muscles normal is of normal strength. It's the tendon that's gooey, so that the action of the muscle can't occur properly, uh, resulting in what looks like muscle weakness, but the disease is not in the muscle itself; it's in the uh, tendon. So that's the definition of a myopathy. Moving on to the next slide, and this is sort of um, difficult to see, um, but if you, you squint real hard and um, I'll just blow it up, there's a, a, a full screen view. And I'll note for anybody who's looking at the slides, there's a little arrow, two arrows in the bottom right-hand corner of that slide, and you can just click on that, and that'll make it full screen, which does help right. us not have to squint quite yeah. so much. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's all go to that full screen view. Um, you'll see um, inherited forms and acquired forms of muscle weakness. And this actually, this list, I, I cut and paste off of um, uh, a website um, that has the proper ICD-10 codes um, listed as well. And so this is how um, the World Health Organization uh, would view myopathy as an inherited forms are acquired. And you can see the first inherited form is, is dystrophy or muscular dystrophy. Um, as uh, would occur in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, and everyone's heard of that. Um, that's Jerry's kids uh, type of uh, myopathy. And then further down, you can see, um, uh, you know, halfway down that list, a little bit further is metabolic myopathies, is, which would occur in uh, a mitochondrial myopathy. You can also have acquired myopathies. 
Um, Drug-induced myopathies are are certainly not uncommon. Uh, Use of steroids can cause a true myopathy, but it's an acquired myopathy, not a myopathy due to um, any genetic mutation. So we're going to move on to the next slide. And um, this slide is labeled, um, what are the main causes of myopathies in adults? And I just want to go through this list because um, we will often in my practice, I'll see patients with myopathy. And in fact, their myopathy is not due to anything uh, having to do primarily with the mitochondria, but it's acquired um, or it's, it's due to some other, uh, other process. Um, probably the most common myopathy in adults um, is, uh, are the first two, the inflammatory and the endocrine. Um, there are different inflammatory disorders that can affect the muscle, including some inflammation caused by um, cancer within the body. And uh, we'll get to that at the last bullet point of this slide. Probably the most single common form of myopathy is that due to bad thyroid function. So either having excessive thyroid function or um, someone being hypothyroid can cause a true and genuine myopathy. And in fact, it looks very much like the mitochondrial myopathy. Um, thyroid hormone is actually activated within the mitochondria. And uh, if you don't have the proper amount of thyroid hormone, your mitochondria just don't function normally. So, so in fact, it's, it's sort of a, it becomes a circular argument. Um, but thyroid disease um, does cause what appears to be a mitochondrial myopathy. Now, of course, essentially all thyroid disease can be properly cared for by proper medication. Um, one to two percent of adult women have are hypothyroid and take Synthroid uh, or levothyroxine. This restores normal thyroid hormone levels, and then the myopathy will disappear. There are toxic um, uh, myopathies. Um, luckily, in the United States, even though alcohol is a big problem, we don't see a lot of alcohol myopathy because uh, most people drink excessive amounts of alcohol, actually have proper nutrition, so they don't get the myopathy associated with it. But steroids, narcotics, including prescription medication, um, a, a drug called colchicine, which is used to treat some uh, inflammatory disorders in gout, and chloroquine, which is an antibiotic-type medication, uh, can all, all cause myopathy. Critical illness can cause a myopathy. We often see true myopathies occurring in adults who have something bad happen to them or in intensive care units for a week or two. And then when it's time for them to recover and get up and get out of bed, they can't because of the myopathy. Um, this is treated with physical therapy and generally within a couple months, people are, are back in action. Uh, the metabolic myopathies, which include mitochondrial disease, and it's not an unusual form of myopathy called perineoplastic. There are some patients with cancer, um, the ca uh, which the cancer actually excretes um, antibodies that attack the muscle or attack the nerve. And um, it's interesting that these cancers generally are tiny. Um, you can't even see them on scan. They're, they're, they're um, um, too small to be seen, but secrete an antibody that causes the myopathy. When we find the antibody, and you can do this with a blood test, um, we, we actually go looking for cancer, often can't find it, and um, tell the patient that they're going to develop a lung cancer or a breast cancer um, sometime down the road. And with increased surveillance, luckily those cancers can be found early and properly treated. But we still have to treat the myopathy, and we do that with certain anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, the laboratory evaluation, moving on to the next slide, that's labeled lab evaluation. The laboratory evaluation for myopathy um, 
is it differs from um, you know doctor to doctor, but this happens to be what I tend to do. Um, CDC is a complete blood count that just looks at the hemoglobin um, and white blood cells. Um, CMP is a complete metabolic panel. Uh, the first two tests are very common when you go to the doctor for blood tests. This is what they'll often order. Um, I check thyroid levels at 0.3. I look at early morning cortisol. Cortisol is a naturally occurring body steroid um, in both excessive and, and low amounts. You can get a myopathy. I look for inflammatory markers, that's 0.5. I, I do a, a vitamin B12 level because although B12 deficiency doesn't cause a myopathy, it can cause um, spinal cord disease or brain disease that makes it look like a myopathy. I check the muscle enzyme CK um, <clears throat> just to let me know if it's an inflammatory myopathy or not. If it's elevated, it, it can go along with any type of myopathy, but if it's elevated, it tells you if the disease is in the muscle. Um, diabetes is, uh, you know, there's just a report issued this morning that one-third of adult Europeans uh, are diabetic or pre-diabetic. Diabetes is very common in our society and, um, and, and uh, can create um, um, symptoms that look like a myopathy. Uh, obviously, treating the diabetes is, is the important point here. Um, I, look at, uh, I look for cancers that are pre-symptomatic, too small to be found. Uh, with scan, um, and that's we do that with a, with a test called the perineoplastic panel, where the antibodies are sent off to their couple labs in the country to check these. And those other tests are basically blood and urine tests looking for um, proteins within the body secreted by cancers. Uh, as it ends up that um, there are a lot of sleep disorders in the United States, and um, a sleep and people with a, a sleep disorder like sleep apnea. Um, and, and, and often the only symptom of this will be snoring. Um, people with sleep apnea will have symptoms that mimic a myopathy. And it's, you don't need to treat the myopathy if that's what the problem is, you need to treat the sleep apnea. Um, here's a more complete list of all the things that we, we need to think about. I'm just gonna skip over that next slide and move on to the slide um, labeled G71 mitochondrial myopathy. Christy, can you hear me okay? Yes, Dr. Cohen, you sound great. Okay. And for Good. everyone following, we're on slide eight. Okay, thanks. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to check because I can't, you know, I don't get any feedback. <laughs> Not a lot of audience participation when everybody's right, on right. mute, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can't see <laughs> we're all clapping on speaking. mute. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, G71.3 is the current ICD-10 code um, that your physicians will use when they diagnose a mitochondrial myopathy. Um, on October 1st, um, all of us moved in the United States from ICD-9 to ICD-10. Um, I used to use 277.87. That number's out, and this uh, convention is now in, and I have not memorized ICD-10 yet. Um, <clears throat> so mitochondrial myopathies are those myopathies where the disorder is due to defects in the mitochondria. So, you know, one of the part, one of the problems that we have as diagnostic uh, physicians is that uh, we have relied on the best tests that we had at the time. So, you know, in 1960, and 1970, and 1980, the only tests available to physicians um, that were looking at myopathy were biopsies. We do muscle biopsies, and you look at them under the microscope. 
But as time has evolved, there have been additional tests that have also evolved. And during the 80s and 90s and, and you know, this century, uh, we now have um, more refined testing for mitochondrial disease. Uh, ultimately, we have genetic testing. So as it ends up, the first paper written about ragged red fibers um, listed all the different muscle disorders uh, where ragged red fibers occurred. And essentially, ragged red fibers will occur uh, in mitochondrial disease and pretty much every other myopathy. So Duchenne's muscular dystrophy can have a ragged red fiber. The, the congenital myopathies, ragged red fibers, all these muscle disorders can have, have ragged red fibers. So although that's what we look for in patients with mitochondrial disease, um, a ragged red fiber tells us that there's a problem with the muscle, but it doesn't tell us that that problem is due to a mitochondrial disease. And uh, this is just one of those, you know, pieces of information that both physicians and uh, our patients um, haven't gotten to understand um, that um, situation. Um, so ragged red fibers help us that there's a muscle disease, but it doesn't define yet that the disease is definitely mitochondrial. Um, in the early 1980s, um, electron transport chain enzymology was developed, and uh, we thought that, gosh, um, if we find defects in the electron transport chain, which is uniquely mitochondrial, then any defect would be due to a mitochondrial disease, and that's pretty much how we practiced up until really just a few years ago. And although it's true that um, bad electron transport chain function tells us that the electron transport chain is not functioning properly. Uh, as we're finding out, there are many things that cause the electron transport chain not to function properly, including things that have nothing to do with the mitochondria itself. Um, so unfortunately, although that was a gold standard test 10 and 15 years ago, um, it's, it's less of a gold standard test now in pretty much every uh, laboratory that does this testing has concluded that the, the, the electron transport chain enzymology in and of itself does not define a mitochondrial disease. It can be used to help make the diagnosis, but it, it as itself um, does not define a mitochondrial disease. And you know, going to something as simplistic as the physical exam, um, there's very few things on physical exam uh, that are unique to uh, mitochondrial weakness. Um, and as it ends up, the, you know, we, we, we argue that for many years that, gosh, the thing that really um, defines the mitochondrial disease is uh, droopy eyelids and the ability for the eyes to move up and down, right and left. And we have a big word for that, and that's called ophthalmoplegia. But in fact, um, there's now some disorders that mimic ophthalmoplegia as well that aren't mitochondrial disorders. These, things, these include things like myotonic dystrophy, um, there's an oropharyngeal muscular dystrophy, um, um, and some other um, disorders that also cause that same symptom as a mitochondrial disease. So um, we, we get very frustrated and throw our hands up in the air and say, gosh, we can't count on all these laboratory tests that we relied on five years ago. What are we supposed to do? And um, you know, in March's um, genetic testing, which I'll get to in a few minutes. The next picture shows uh, an electron microscope of a patient of mine um, that I had diagnosed as having a mitochondrial disease. Now, 
we move to the left, next slide, it's a black and white slide. It's, this is the, the muscle um, viewed uh, about uh, 40,000 times magnification. Um, it's beyond the limit of resolution of color. Um, so you, you, these, these slides have to be black and white because at this magnification, there's no such thing as color. Um, and, and what we see here in the upper right hand is um, near, near the pathology label, and you'll see a 96 there. So this is a slide from 1996. That's the nucleus of the muscle cell. If you look at the upper left-hand corner and the lower right-hand corner, you'll see some zebra-stripe-looking objects. That's the muscle fibers that are left. And everything in the middle, all those circular blobs, are uh, giant diseased mitochondria. And so this is a picture of heart muscle uh, taken from a child um, uh, who uh, ended up dying um, with what I had just diagnosed as mitochondrial disease. Now, using the 1996 or even 2006 uh, or even 2011 uh, technology, uh, this child would definitely have a mitochondrial disease. But I did not have genetic testing available for me back in 1996. And uh, by today's standards, we'd all be scratching our head and we'd say, gosh, it's probably a mitochondrial disease, but you've got to prove it to me uh, with genetic testing. Um, the next slide is from a, another patient. I'm sorry, that's from the same patient, a higher magnification. Again, you can see these same um, zebra-stripe-looking muscle fibers, and between them, these round objects that are absolutely gigantic. These are huge mitochondria. And then there's some smaller mitochondria with um, some little um, black threads in them. Um, there's one in the sort of the mid, mid part of the picture, a little bit off to the right just to the right of that giant mitochondria with some black threads in it. Those are paracrystalline inclusions, and uh, that means there's coagulated mitochondrial proteins. Um, these, are, um, these are big mitochondria, but they're not functioning. And uh, again, another really striking picture of what mitochondrial disease uh, looks like under the microscope. Uh, moving on to the next um, um, slide is labeled genetic, genetic testing. Um, and uh, um, th these are the different types of genetic tests that are available to us um, to look for mitochondrial disease. And uh, I'm not going to go through, um, you know, all of uh, the details on this slide, um, but I do want to say that mitochondrial, a complete mitochondrial, you know, gene testing would include uh, looking at the mitochondrial DNA. And this is a, a small piece of DNA in all the mitochondria. There are 37 genes in mitochondrial DNA. And um, really since the year 2000, um, those genes could be sequenced routinely in the laboratory. I've got to say in the year 2000, um, that cost would be about $15,000 and take a year and a half to be done. Uh, the cost now is about $2,000. And um, you can get it turned around in about a week to two weeks in most commercial labs. So this is one of those situations where the testing has gotten a lot cheaper and, and a lot faster. Um, the, um, the, also, as it ends up, there's about 1,100 different mitochondrial genes in the nucleus of the cell. And, and um, the commercial labs um, offer testing for some or all of these genes. And uh, this testing was of individual genes did not become available 
until the year 2006. So in 2005, if you had a nuclear gene, a single nuclear gene you wanted tested, you weren't able to get it done. But in 2006, um, there were a few labs that entered the marketplace um, that are still in existence that said, if you want a single gene test, then tell us what gene you want, and we'll make a test for you. Um, and up until the year 2012, that's how it was done. So if we wanted one gene or we wanted 10 genes tested, we would tell the lab what genes we would want. And for about $2,000 a gene, they would do testing for us. Uh, with the use of um, something called next-gen sequencing, um, in 2011, um, laboratories entered the marketplace that first ordered panels of 250 genes and then 450 genes, and now there's some labs that even offer all 1,100 genes, uh, mitochondrial, uh, nuclear mitochondrial genes to be tested. And it ends up that the testing for these genes, uh, remember it used to be $2,000 per gene, now you get about 1,100 genes for I think about $6,000 commercially. So, um, and the turnaround time again is, is now down to weeks uh, for this type of testing. Um, let's talk about treatment for myopathy. But let me back up. I, I've got to say that um, all of my patients um, that have had mitochondrial diagnoses uh, based on uh, the old standards of you know, uh, blood tests, urine tests, spinal fluid tests, muscle biopsies, uh, electron transport chain enzymology, oxfos, polarography. I've tried to get all those folks tested um, using mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA panels. Um, because of insurance reasons, a lot of people have not gotten tested. But of the ones that have gotten tested, uh, many of them who have very good, you know, um, findings suggestive of mitochondrial disease, we don't find mutations in. And uh, it's very frustrating for both myself and the patient to have gone this far and not been able to find uh, proof that it is definitely a mitochondrial disease. And we can answer questions about that um, frustrating fact uh, later on. Mm -hmm. So the treatment for myopathy, you know, some myopathies are treatable and curable. Obviously, um, the acquired myopathies like those due to thyroid disease, totally treatable and curable uh, with medication, um, whereas other myopathies um, are, are not. And as it ends up that um, although the myopathy portion of mitochondrial myopathies may be treatable, um, that treatment um, seldom results in restoration of normal function, and, and certainly they're not curable. Um, so we have to use supportive care. And supportive care, um, unfortunately, are things like physical therapy and occupational therapy, which really end up more um, teaching the person how to get around uh, with their muscle weakness more than actually improving the muscle strength to the point uh, that they can function in an independent fashion. Uh, the use of assistive devices and bracing um, helps, but certainly doesn't cure the issue. There are some rare, truly responsive um, patients that have CoQ10 deficiency, carnitine deficiency, or creatine deficiency, where just taking the supplement um, restores normal or near normal function. Unfortunately, these, these cases um, um, are, are, are rare uh, indeed, uh, but there are some patients with that. So I'm going to move on to um, clinical trial work, and um, I, I love this cartoon. It's uh, two guys uh, dragging a cart of wheels um, with square tires, and sometimes that's how it feels uh, when we do this work because it just takes forever. 
this is my whiteboard. The next slide is my whiteboard at work. Um, and uh, this is slide 14. Um, and uh, I do a lot of administrative stuff, and that's to the top, but all my research studies are on the bottom. And um, I spend really half my time involved in research um, in mitochondrial disease patients. So let's talk about what the scope of the problem is on slide 15. Unlike many diseases, we're not dealing with a unique illness. I mean, if you look at a disease like cystic fibrosis, 100% of people with cystic fibrosis have mutations in one gene. And although mutations in one part of that gene can be treated, have to be treated differently than mutations in the other part of that gene, if you've got CF, it's a, it's a unique illness, uh, primarily involving the lungs and the part of the pancreas that makes digestive enzymes. And that's the scope of their problem. Um, the scope of our problem is that we have hundreds of distinct disorders. And um, the concept of being able to treat any one disorder properly and think that that therapy is going to work in the other, I think it's fantasy. So that's, that's, a, that's a big problem. Um, again, we have not one gene, but 37 mitochondrial DNA genes and 1,100 nuclear genes. And actually, that 1,100 number, I was at a conference in India uh, two weeks ago, and that 1,100 number um, has actually been um, hiked up to about 1,500 nuclear genes involved in mitochondrial function. The second problem is we're dealing with illnesses that span the entire lifespan. Um, you know, I, you know, from a, a, a practical point of view, we're dealing with illnesses that can present any time between birth and, the ninth, and, and, and 60 years of age. So unlike CF, when you're dealing with an illness that presents in the first year of life, maybe the second, uh, you know, we're not dealing with that issue at all. We're dealing with just a huge um, age span and the Food and Drug Administration views treatment different in kids than they view as adults. The next problem is that um, major organ systems are involved, and it's not one major organ, organ system, but generally several. And uh, when, when the FDA wants you to um, come up with a treatment, they're, they, they want to know what, what's, what's getting better. And from a statistical point of view, when you do a study, um, depending on how many patients you have, you can only identify one or two um, parameters for measuring improvement uh, that will allow you to reach statistical significance without hundreds of thousands of patients. So, um, um, and even in the giant Alzheimer's studies or in the giant blood pressure studies, you know, in the blood pressure study, they're looking for, does the drug help blood pressure? That's what they're looking for. And, and in our studies, we want to see, gosh, is the vision better? Is the heart better? You know, is cognitive function better? Are there fewer seizures? Uh, you can't ask all those questions um, because statistically you would need way too many patients um, to, to answer all of them. So you've got to choose one and maybe two endpoints for improvement. Um, the other scope of the problem, at least in taking care of our patients, is that the treatments that we use such as symptomatic care, exercise, and vitamins, um, seldom improve function well enough uh, for people to uh, regain anything like a normal life. And having been in this you know, business for 25 years um, and, and, and all the therapies, uh, we have not uh, found um, one therapy that really works uh, well and certainly doesn't work uh, well in more than a 
a small fraction of patients. Here's our, here are our goals of therapy on slide 16, and I'm not going to go through these, but these are all the things that we want to achieve for our patients. Um, and given our goals of therapy, how do we measure success? And I'm just going to start with brain. And if you're dealing with a mitochondrial disease that causes lots of seizures, um, um, you want to measure success in a seizure count. You want to know that they were having 50 seizures a week before treatment, and now they're only have, having three seizures a week after treatment. That's a concept that the FDA can embrace and understand and uh, would be very happy with in terms of what we call a, uh, a, therapy, a successful therapeutic endpoint. Um, if it was so easy. Um, but, but as it ends up, um, if you have a drug um, that you want to test in mitochondrial patients and your endpoint is seizure count, uh, and your endpoint isn't muscle strength, um, but your patients are strong, and you don't measure muscle strength as part of your study, but the patients report that they're stronger at the end of the study, um, yet their seizures are the same, the FDA would view that as a study failure. Um, and the fact that they did get stronger is irrelevant in terms of getting that drug approved um, or put on the market. You would, the, the company would have to sponsor a study looking solely at muscle strength um, um, and, and target that uh, uh, before they can get, uh, submit the data to the FDA for potential improvement. So you almost have to guess how a drug's going to work before you actually study it. Uh, and again, uh, that's a pretty complicated thing to do. Moving on to the next slide, 18. Um, you know, people, we, we, we talk about, you know, what current treatments exist um, and why they exist. Here's a, a slide uh, labeled rationale for vitamin cofactor therapy. This is why us mitochondrial doctors prescribe these vitamins and therapies. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not going to go through the list, but uh, um, here they are. This is why we prescribe them, the rationale. Um, and then I'm going to show a slide on slide 19. Um, this is my therapy um, before molecular diagnostics um, and how my therapy has evolved over time. When I entered practice in 1989, I went to my two mentors and said, what vitamins should I put my mitochondrial patients on? And this was the list of vitamins. Um, and two different uh, mito docs in 1989 gave me almost the identical list, uh, but here they are. And then if you go to 2008, uh, my vitamin list had reduced um, significantly. And what happened in, during those years? Uh, well, first of all, my patients told me uh, that I could prescribe these, these 20 vitamins, but they couldn't get them into their kids or couldn't take them themselves uh, because of expense and complexity, and they just couldn't keep up with the aggressive therapeutic regimen. There were a few patients that could, but um, by and large, most patients couldn't. And by 2008, I had come up with, there had been enough publications um, to suggest that uh, one rational list would be the one that you would see here. And pretty much for the most part, this is the list that I use today, with the single exception that I've scratched levocarnitine um, off my list of routinely prescribed um, supplements um, just because um, of the potential long-term toxicity to the heart of levocarnitine and the fact that um, um, there have been a lot of publications suggesting that it's not useful at all. Um, sometimes it's still used a little. I tend not to take my patients off um, 
uh, all of their legal carnitine, but I have dose reduced those that are um, legal carnitine. Um, and the other the other thing is that shotgun therapy just didn't make sense. You're you're, you're taking uh, one approach to hundreds of diseases. There's no ability to judge whether these medications are working or not. It's expensive. Um, the only people that were able to carry this out were, um, 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 and I don't say this in a mean way, overly compulsive parents or patients, uh, but um, really as it ends up, very few of my patients could carry out that giant list of medications. Um, those of us in practice were viewed as vitamin pushers and, and our colleagues would look at us in a strange way. Um, so, so, you know, partially that was one of the reasons why we backed off. And it didn't make, the problem is it didn't meet, meet therapeutic goals. Um, our patients weren't getting better. And then more and more publications came out saying that this approach just wasn't helping patients. Hence, that's why I reduced all those reasons and the reasons I reduced my uh, therapeutic um, regimen to what it is today. Uh, having said that, um, uh, we still haven't achieved our goals because uh, it's very seldom that a patient would say, hey, doc, those drugs work great. I don't need to see you anymore. They keep coming back because it doesn't work great. So on slide 21, here are some of the drugs that are under uh, current investigation. We're going to talk about a couple of weeks a little later on. Um, slide 22 is my typical um, treatment for mitochondrial disease. I'm not going to go into this. Um, um, it's beyond the scope of... Uh, what we want to talk about today, but um, that's that's what that's my treatment. I'm happy to answer questions about it. So we're going to move on to clinical trials um, and talk about the concept of randomized clinical trials, which include placebo-controlled crossover design and double-blinded trials. Um, <clears throat> Twenty-four. What is the FDA looking for? Um, the FDA is looking for functional improvement. Um, using verified tools and scales. They want to know that our patients are better because they took the drug, and they want to know exactly what's better. Um, <clears throat> they don't want to, they're not going to accept, I feel better, I look better. It has to be a verified tool. So when someone says they feel stronger, we have to actually prove to the FDA that, in fact, they are stronger. The FDA is looking for fewer adverse events, and adverse event, that would be something like a hospitalization. So if we could prove that before, in the year prior to therapy, the patient spent 43 days in the hospital uh, uh, because of 10 admissions, and then after the treatment, they were only hospitalized once for three days, uh, that's a major improvement in adverse events. The FDA will accept an ultra, an ultra natural history. So the natural history of a disease, like in Libra's hereditary optic neuropathy, is to lose vision with 25% of patients recovering. And you start, you have a drug, and that patient's actually regain vision. 85% um, of the time, the FDA would say, ah, you've changed the natural history of the disease. Um, we would approve the drug. What is the F next slide, slide 25, is what the FDA is not looking for. The FDA doesn't care if the lactic acid levels are lower. It doesn't care if the brain MRI scan is improved. It doesn't care if you've reduced ragged red fibers in your muscle or you improved your electron transport chain enzymology. It doesn't care about any laboratory value. It only cares about whether the patient is better or not. Um, so with the help of the National Institutes of Health on page 26, um, we've created this um, list of um, common 
data elements. And these are um, endpoints uh, that can be used in mitochondrial trials um, that have been verified. These are the tool, this is the toolbox that have been verified um, as, um, as, as endpoints that are proven to, um, to be used to prove that someone has been helped by any particular um, um, treatment. And if you want to explore this um, website, just go into a Google search engine and type out NINDS common data elements uh, mitochondria, and you'll be taken to the web page. Um, and then you can poke around and explore um, all these data elements. So on the next slide, slide 27, is uh, myself and Dr. Team were put in charge of the neurological assessments. Uh, we co-chaired um, that panel and put together um, a really large toolbox of proven um, um, uh, proven um, measuring tools to um, make to, to allow one to assess whether a drug is working or not. So, for example, um, let's just go to slide 28 again. This is way too small to to really see, but um, this is an example of um, um, using um, uh, the, the the first the first um, tool is what's called the Barry Albright dystonia scale. Dystonia is one of the common features of Lee syndrome, and it's a twisting movement of the body. And uh, someone has developed a scale to actually verify how bad these movements are. And, it's, and so if we have a therapy that, has show, that shows that the, using this Barry Albright dystonia scale improves dystonia from a bad score of 18 to a good score of 12, um, the FDA would say, ah, you can prove dystonia, uh, we'll approve your medication. So there's literally dozens and dozens of different tools to measure everything from cognitive development, language function, muscle strength, muscle endurance, um, twisting movements, um, you know, uh, and other, other groups looked at vision, other groups looked at uh, lab values and MRI scans, which again, the FDA is not really interested in, but we came up with this really large toolbox so that now when someone designs a trial, they go to the NINDS Accommodated Elements Mitochondrial website and, set, and, and can pick the tools that they would want to use to help design their trial. Moving, moving to um, slide 29, when you, when you pick your endpoints, the FDA really wants you to keep it simple um, because they're not looking, again, looking for um, some convoluted improvement in how the MRI scan looks. They want to see if a person uh, can walk better uh, or, or talk better. So a lot of our you know, this a lot of our studies have focused on these very um, simple um, tools tools that are listed here. Uh, we use the pediat the, the Newcastle Pediatric and Adult Mitochondrial Disease Scale. We do adverse event counts, and I talked about adverse events a couple minutes ago. And then in, in one of our studies, we said, you know, we're going to be taking all kids with mitochondrial disease in this study. Um, let's let the investigator choose two out of these six um, scales, um, and, and then we'll submit that to the FDA. Um, and uh, those are the scales that we used um, in our, in our um, design of our um, Raptor uh, RP103 study. 
Um, the six-minute walk test is very interesting. Basically, obviously, the person has to walk to participate in that. Uh, but you just have the person walk for six minutes and see how long they, how many, how many uh, feet they've covered in that six-minute period. And the reason this is, we're so excited about this, um, I mean, the problems with the six-minute walk test. Um, again, if you can't walk, it's of, of no use whatsoever. Um, um, and they're, they're, you know, people have good days and bad days. So sometimes if you test someone on a bad day, you're not going to get a, a truly accurate representation of how much they can walk. But the, the good thing is that the FDA has said, uh, we trust this so much that we actually approved a multiple, uh, a muscular dystrophy drug, which is actually now FDA approved and will be on the market within a few months. So we'll be able to treat muscular dystrophy, at least uh, some kids with muscular dystrophy with this drug. And that was, the FDA was approval was done on an improvement in the six minute walk test. So that's why we're including that in so many of our, our, our drug studies because um, we've already, we already know the FDA likes it. Um, the phase three study is the is a study um, that, by definition, has a control group and in mitochondrial disease that control group are people getting placebos. And um, the ultimate phase three study has to be randomized, um, meaning that patients have to be uh, randomly selected to get placebo or active agent. Um, and that's, that's the, and it's got to be uh, double blinded, meaning that the doctor doesn't know what the patient's getting, nor the patient knows what the patient's getting. Ultimately, we'd like a crossover, uh, meaning that, you know, the best design study would treat patients with either placebo or real drug for a period of time. And then at the end of that period of time, you'd switch. If the patient's getting the real drug will go to placebo, and the patient's getting placebo will get to the real drug. Um, now, that doesn't work well for a mitochondrial disease population. Um, so what we did in some of our early studies is um, we, we had the first six months as placebo versus real drug, but at the end of the six months, those on placebo went to real drug at one or two different dosages. Um, and so then you had, it took a year, but you were able then to study whether um, adding a drug, again, in a blinded fashion, you don't know what the patient's getting, but adding a drug and changing the dose um, could be helpful or not. So um, that's the ultimate type of study that the FDA will will accept in terms of um, if if you reach your endpoints, um, getting approval uh, to get a drug on the market. Um, but the study also has to excite the patients and investigators. Um, it has to be financially viable, meaning you know these studies cost a lot, but you got to you have enough money to pay for it. And that the perception of um, getting better or possibility of getting better must be worth the travel uh, because no one's going to get on a plane, uh, travel a thousand miles, spend three days uh, if the perception is that it's not going to be a helpful um, therapy. Um, so our first study um, that was done on a big level was our, our um, Edison study looking at a drug called EPI743. Um, this was not used to study myopathy per se, and I'm really not going to talk about um, EPI743 today, but just it was our first trial that really got underway robustly in 2012, and we're still collecting data on it. We don't have any final results um, to report. 
Um, this, this study was uh, at four sites in the United States, um, Akron, Baylor, Stanford, and Seattle. We treated 36 patients um, in a design that I um, um, you know, uh, mentioned before. Our primary outcome measure was, in, was improvement in the Newcastle mitochondrial disease scale and, and uh, adverse event count. Um, and the, the secondary outcomes you can um, see Actually, adverse events was a secondary measure. Um, we, were, we were collecting all this data on secondary uh, outcome measures, uh, but the primary outcome measure was the, the Newcastle score. Uh, our, our next study that we got um, going in a big way was our um, study of RP103, a drug called Sustainamine in uh, patients, uh, children with um, uh, mitochondrial disease, and that study um, was open label, meaning everyone who enters the study gets the drug. Um, part of the study design was dose escalation to see how much drug a patient could tolerate. And again, we chose very similar endpoints of the study. The purpose of this study was not to go after FDA approval because we, we didn't design it uh, as a randomized controlled trial. We designed it as an open label. So the purpose of this study was really to assess, to assess the whether the drug is safe, whether it's tolerable, and how much you can give um, before kids get um, side effects to the medication. Moving on to the uh, slide 35, it's the mitochondrial myopathy trials. Um, there are two of them ongoing in the United States. Now that I know, one is a drug um, called Bendavia, um, um, made by Stealth Biotherapeutics, and the next is a medication called RT408, uh, made by Riata. Um, so this is the molecular structure of Bendavia, that's slide 36. It's four amino acids strung together. Um, as it ends up that this drug targets a critical part of the inner mitochondrial membrane called cardiolipin. Uh, the inner mitochondrial membrane is made up of fats. Uh, it doesn't have any cholesterol in it. It better not, because cholesterol disrupts the inner mitochondrial membrane's function. Um, and, uh, but the the um, lipid, the main lipid in the intermitochondrial membrane is a lipid called cardiolipin. Moving on to slide 38, um, the structure in red is the normal structure of cardiolipin, and it ends up that cardiolipin gets damaged in mitochondrial diseases, and actually in other diseases that affect mitochondria. And it starts, it, it, the, the structure starts to change shape. And uh, changing the shape disrupts the, the inner mitochondrial membrane integrity and makes the electron transport chain fall apart. It, it ends up, we think, that, that Bendavia actually forms sort of a net over the top of cardiolipin and pulls it back into its normal shape and hence normal function. That's the reported method of why Bendavia would work in a mitochondrial uh, disease model. Moving on to slide 39, um, the top um, row shows a electron micrograph of a very ill-looking mitochondria. And what the inner mitochondrial membrane may look like, you can see complexes one, three, four, and five, all you know, in a different, um, not, not sitting next to each other, um, but adding cardiolipin restores the uh, physical appearance of the mitochondria to normal and pulls all those electron transport chain um, complexes in close proximity so they can actually function again. This is an artist representation of how Bendavia uh, would, would function 
um, no one's actually um, seen that in a, in a picture like no one's taken a photograph of that actually happening. But there are photographs on slide 40 um, showing what happens if you um, severely damage mitochondria using a laboratory technique. And the laboratory technique here was basically um, a, a animal model where the kidney was tied off. Um, so the blood flow of the kidney was tied off the point where the kidney almost died. And then the blood flow was reestablished to that kidney. And if you look at the mitochondria after doing that um, in, in, a, in, in an animal, the mitochondria start to fall apart. So the picture um, of, uh, in the top left um, shows what a, a normal mitochondria would look like. Um, if you just go off to the right, uh, if you look in the white box, um, that's what a mitochondria would look like um, that has been damaged in that way. Um, you basically see that the structure of the mitochondria looks very different. It's starting to fall apart. And in the third column, are the mitochondria that have been treated with Bendavia. So again, tying off um, blood flow to the kidney to the point the kidney almost dies, then reestablishing blood flow and adding Bendavia reestablishes a very normal looking mitochondria. So again, this is just a one model of how Bendavia may work. If we go to the next slide and look at the blood vessels, uh, and I'm not gonna go through all the details of this, um, <clears throat> but using Bendavia and a similar uh, type of, you know, trying to bump off the, the kidney, um, the, these, the blood vessels look almost normal after um, treated with Bendavia, uh, suggesting that the, the kidney actually uh, is going to function normally. Um, and this is a, a, a visual model um, looking um, at um, rat uh, or mouse, I'm sorry, mouse diabetic retinopathy. Uh, which is um, um, another way to injure the mitochondria within the eye of the, the rat. And again, showing, uh, and again, I'm not going to go to the details, but basically Bendavia um, in, in the eyes of rats um, protected and reestablished normal vision um, in, a, a, in a mouse model of mitochondrial dysfunction. So, um, we, on slide 43, we decided to um, study um, Bendavia in a phase, what called, what's called the phase one, two clinical trial. Phase one means we're looking for the best dose. Phase two means we're looking for whether it works or not. So we designed this trial um, to have three groups of um, 12 patients in each group. Um, group one, group two, and group three, um, all the same uh, in terms of um, nine patients in, that, in each group get the active drug. Three patients in each group get placebo. Um, but the dose of group one is a dose of 0.01. Group two gets 10 times as much drug, and group three gets 25 times as much drug um, as the group one patients. We treat patients for just five days. Uh, our primary endpoint is safety and tolerability at increasing doses. Our secondary endpoints end up being uh, the six-minute walk test and something called cardiopulmonary exercise testing. We're looking at um, how much oxygen the person's mitochondria actually extract uh, during exercise. We're also looking at some pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data 
uh, to help us with the proper um, dosing of the drug in any subsequent study. So we're just about to finish um, um, phase two of the three cohorts, and we'll be moving on probably around January 1st to recruit the final 12 patients in this study. Um, and this is a study between uh, groups in Boston, um, Pittsburgh, Akron, and San Diego. Moving on to slide 44 is a drug um, from the Riata company called RK408. Um, this is a synthetic uh, triterpenoid. Uh, triterpenoids are naturally occurring compounds. Our bodies make them. Um, and this is a synthetic terpenoid um, trying to sort of one-up what the body can do. And the triterpenoids have broad anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory actions. Um, and, uh, it, you know, we're, we're, as it ends up, um, we'll, we'll see a, a slide or two, um, may actually improve mitochondrial function as well. So um, the reported action of RTA408 is to increase a, essentially a hormone in the body called NRF2. And uh, NRF2 is critical in formations of cancer. And as it ends up, um, um, inflammation in the body, and as it ends up, mitochondrial function. Moving on to slide, slide 46, um, uh, point two is that when we, in, in, in laboratory studies, giving this drug improves mitochondrial respiration, improves mitochondrial, mitochondrial biogenesis, so that means more mitochondria form that are healthy, and seems to be a very potent um, antioxidant. It's also being used to develop studies in cancer as well, because um, it has anti-cancer effects. So we have a study we call the motor study that's going on. Um, uh, this study is being done um, in Norway. I'm sorry, in in uh, in uh, Denmark. I apologize. In Copenhagen, um, in, in Dallas, and in about six other sites in the United States, including you know my site. Um, we're looking for patients with mitochondrial myopathy, very much like the Bendavia study. The ages are similar to Bendavia, and Bendavia, I failed to mention, but it's 16 to 65. And in the RTA 408, it's 18 to 75. The patients need to um, be weak, but not too weak. Um, the one, one problem getting patients on this study is that there's a lot of exclusionary criteria. Um, including being on a list of drugs, about 75 different drugs um, that are very, some of these drugs are very common. So we have to exclude a lot of patients just because of the, the drugs that they're on. Um, now here's the group of the hospitals that are participating in, in the, the motor study on slide 48. Um, our outcome measures uh, is the measure the change of peak workload during exercise testing Secondary measures, a six-minute walk test. And slide 50 is time for questions. So uh, we're at um, Eastern Time uh, 104, and I think we're going to try to do about 15 minutes worth of questions. So Wonderful. I'll hand the microphone back over to Christy. Thanks for your attention. Oh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cohen. Some really wonderful points that you have 
brought up in this presentation. Um, and before we open up the lines to callers, I'm just going to address a couple of the questions that we had via email and, uh, and also kind of bring up a couple of, I think, uh, salient points from the presentation. But thank you again, because Dr. Cohen, that was a really excellent overview, not only about mitochondrial myopathy, but also about the process for clinical trials um, as well, really in, enlightening. Um, so let's focus a little bit on mitochondrial myopathy, um, let, and let's talk about how um, one might arrive at that diagnosis. You talked a lot about the the pathway and the advances in genetic testing to arrive at a diagnosis of mitochondrial myopathy, but is it possible that a patient might have mitochondrial myopathy but not be carrying that as their primary diagnosis on their medical record, per se? And And why would that be the case? So the answer is, is yes. Um, we see this uh, frequently. Um, part of the problem that we have with mitochondrial disease, that we have with mitochondrial disease, is the fact that we, a lot of physicians um, still don't know about mitochondrial disease. I mean, you know, it's, it's the, the fact is that um, despite the fact that for the last 10 years, us mitodocs have been going around you know, talking about mitochondrial diseases, um, we haven't reached uh, most doctors um, in the United States. And and so unless you know about it, you're going to be very unlikely to diagnose it. And um, again, that's a, that's, a, that's a challenge that we just haven't uh, overcome. Um, the, you know, the, the, the diagnosing the mitochondrial disease requires some basic understanding that it that it does exist, and and looking for, you know, patients who have not just the muscle weakness, but generally people with mitochondrial myopathy will have something else um, besides muscle weakness, whether it be hearing loss or stroke-like events or retinitis pigmentosus or droopy eyelids. Um, it, it's the recognition of patterns uh, that would make you think that it's a mitochondrial disease. So we, we still have that challenge ahead. And the second issue is that even if you understand the disease um, and know what to look for clinically, trying to prove it is a cumbersome and uh, expensive um, um, expensive series of tests. And we are just um, trying to get insurance companies to pay for it um, ends up being a, a big deal. Um, I. The American Academy of Neurology has accepted and endorsed a policy statement that was written by myself, um, a physician at UCLA named Brent Fogel, who has done more to um, push genetic testing for um, mitochondrial diseases and other neurodegenerative diseases, and um, a, another colleague, who, a neurologist who really doesn't know anything about genetic testing and mitochondrial disease but has worked in the insurance industry. Um, the three of us wrote a, a policy statement it was approved by the American Academy of Neurology a couple months ago. And once it gets published, and that publication should occur in about two months, uh, can be used by physicians to help uh, get, testing, uh, get testing approved for uh, patients with suspected mitochondrial disease uh, and for broad panels of tests. So we're hoping that's gonna help. Uh, very good. Thank you. So I think that a takeaway message then is that 
there may be patients who have been told that you have a mitochondrial disorder and, and may have genetic testing, but may not have been directly told mitochondrial myopathy is their primary diagnosis. But that, that decision can be made by, particularly for the subject of these clinical trials, that doesn't mean that mitochondrial myopathy isn't part of the array of issues for that patient, that having that genetic diagnosis may be a good qualifier for you to think about whether you might be eligible to participate in these important clinical trials. Right. For the, for the trials, we do need genetic confirmation. I've got to tell you, I've got, you know, so, I mean, I have several hundred patients that I follow, and the majority of them, uh, would not be eligible for any of these trials because I have not proven um, they have a, have a mitochondrial disease to the, to the point that the trial would need to understand. So, I mean, I follow plenty of patients whose insurance companies won't allow genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, the patient understands that I feel they've got a mitochondrial disease. And, you know, and, and so we go and we treat them as if they did, did have a mitochondrial disease. And, I can tell you I've done my best to make sure they don't have anything else I had already talked about today. I mean, I don't want to diagnose a patient with a mitochondrial disease and not check the fact that they possibly have, you know, a cancer um, or thyroid disease. So we we do screen for all of that. Excellent point and certainly speaks straight to the heart of the many patients who are in that situation around the country and the world who um, have been told that they have a mitochondrial disease and it and it may be they may be unable to obtain genetic testing or perhaps they had genetic testing that uh, didn't catch anything or and that continues to advance so it certainly is a, a quagmire um, and emphasizes the importance of our patient community being pioneers along with the clinicians in beginning to advance the promise for therapeutics for mitochondrial diseases like these two trials that are currently recruiting, but how important it is for patients to be involved and to, you know, raise your hand if you think that you might qualify because certainly you can't screen every patient and it's important to have patients come forward to say that, you know, you have had a genetic diagnosis and may qualify. I urge our patient community to think about that because one of the questions that we received over email, and I think everyone probably is thinking this, is this is really exciting. I don't qualify for the trial, but how soon can I hope for drugs like this to come to market? And certainly that's the question that that everyone wants to know the answer to. Um, And Dr. Cohen, I'll let you speak to again to how how that process works and how important it is for people to be involved in this clinical trial process so that we can move ahead with therapeutics that do become available to a greater audience. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the problems that we face in the mitochondrial community is um, that we don't have any um, prescription medications that have been proven to, to work. And we need to get these to market. Um, we're fortunate for because of the Orphan Drug Act um, that companies are interested in um, developing drugs for mitochondrial diseases. Uh, we're also fortunate that um, if we have a drug um, that works for mitochondrial disease, it may work for diabetes or dementia or some of the other very common adult diseases. It's a lot cheaper for a company to get a drug approved for mitochondrial disease and then go after the Alzheimer's disease indication 
and it would be just to go after the Alzheimer's disease indication from the get-go. And so it's to our advantage that um, uh, <clears throat> we sit in that interface. The problem that we face is that the companies really thought, we, you know, when they, when they designed these 36 patient trials, they thought we'd have patients enrolled within two weeks. They, think, they thought that we'd have enough that 36 people would, you know, say, hey, let, let's participate. And it took us a year and a half to get our 36 patients into the Edison trial. Um, and then, you know, the same thing uh, with the, you know, Bendavi and Riata trials is that uh, recruitment has been very slow. We don't exactly understand why. Um, we're doing our best to enroll all, all of our patients, you know, but we, we need patients from other parts of the country um, as well. You know, we, we go to the company and say, well, if you give us, you know, an exclusion of 75 different medications, it's hard to find patients. You know, half of our patients that could be in the trial can't be because of um, these, these potential serious drug-drug um, interactions with the Riata product. So the, the trial is designed as best as it can be designed, but, um, you know, there are stumbling blocks to getting patients into the trial. So we really need to ask everyone to do their best um, to, you know, consider entry into get, you know, getting entry into the trial or coming up for, you know, a visit or a screening visit. So we want people to talk it up. So if they are potentially eligible, you know, let's let's you know try to, you know, get someone uh, into the trial. So I'd like to add that if you are listening to this and you are an adult patient with a genetic diagnosis um, who thinks that you may qualify for one of these mitochondrial myopathy trials, there's two things that you can do. One is um, I've posted links on to the blog page that has the information about today's call to clinicaltrials.gov for the stealth and Riata mitochondrial myopathy trials. But you are also welcome to email me directly and just uh, let me know that you have some questions and I'd be glad to point you in the right direction and get you connected to the um, principal investigator of the center that's closest to you geographically so that you can um, explore that a little further. I, it really is an opportunity for us as the patient community to change how future generations of individuals, our children, family members, new people who are diagnosed with mitochondrial dys dysfunction and genetic mitochondrial disease as well, to be able to have that option for a treatment that all of us don't have right now. But by being involved in these trials, um, regardless of whether we really feel like it's worth it to us today. It's worth it in the future because without participation in these trials now, we, we can't advance those drugs to market. So we really have a role to play as the patient and parent community. I'm going to just jump ahead to a couple other questions, and I do want to unmute the lines, Dr. Cohen, and we may um, stay on a few more minutes if you have the flexibility in your schedule. Yes. Yep. Uh, so good question. I had a question from a person who said their son developed a mitochondrial myopathy in high school and has now been dealing with muscle weakness 
And um, part of their symptoms include uh, GI symptoms, which I thought was interesting because you did mention earlier in your talk when you're talking about muscle cells, about the GI tract being lined with muscle cells. And so if you have a lot of GI symptoms in addition to muscle weakness, does that qualify you as having a muscle uh, mitochondrial myopathy? And and why or why not, um, you know, sure. assuming? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, the, the GI tract has, is lined by a very thin layer of smooth muscle. Um, it, the problem is that no one does muscle biopsies of um, the GI tract. It, it, it's sort of hard to get to. Um, you can do what's called a rectal biopsy, um, um, which can look at smooth muscle, but no one's published any data on what normal or abnormal, you know, smooth muscle would look like in a mitochondrial disease. So although you can do it, you know, there's there's very limited information in the literature about how one would quantify that in terms of helping you make a, a diagnosis or not. But um, gastroparesis or abnormal um, stomach or intestinal functioning is part of the mitochondrial spectrum, probably on the basis of um, smooth muscle, possibly on the basis of bad nerves as well. Uh, so that could be used to help you clinically uh, make a diagnosis. So, Dr. Cohen, the second part of that question, and then I'm going to unmute our um, lines for our callers, is related to a CK. If a high CK can be a identifier of a mitochondrial myopathy as well. Right. So CK is, um, is a muscle enzyme. As muscle breaks apart, um, it, it, it will be released in the blood and comes across as a high uh, value. Um, extremely high values are generally not mitochondrial in nature. Um, they do the muscle breakdown from a number of different reasons, both genetic and acquired. Um, but it, it's one of those numbers that can, the CK is high, we, will, we, we say, gosh, it's a muscle disease. And then you can use other features of the illness to push you towards or away from it being the mitochondrial. Um, so if, you're, if your CK is high and you've got droopy eyelids and your eyes don't move very well left or right, up or down, um, aside from the very, there's, there's a few other things that it could be, but uh, mitochondrial disease would be on the top of the list. Or if you've got muscle disease and seizures, for example, that would make you think it's mitochondrial. So I'm going to open the lines now. Thank you, Dr. Cohen, and allow us to take questions from our callers. I'm going to remind everyone that you can use star six to mute and unmute your own line. So if you're in a noisy place, please have the courtesy just quickly use star six to mute your line so that we can um, hear the questions from everybody. And we'll just take turns and have as many questions as we can. I will tell you, if you don't get a chance to answer your question or I didn't get a chance to ask your question for you, please feel free to email me, director at mitoaction.org, and I'll compile those questions for Dr. Cohen and follow up with you uh, individually. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, take our first question. Who would like to ask the first question? Jake over here. Okay, I heard a gentleman's voice, so go ahead, please. Uh, yes, I uh, yeah, this is Jacob. Yes, basically, I've been having uh, exercise intolerance, and I've been going to all done all the test tests, uh, mostly that to mention except the genome testing, the I did the muscle biopsy testing, and all that for the mitochondria disease. Uh, what it showed was the abnormal. 
commodity high level of uh, respiratory chain enzyme. Uh, as I said, I have in uh, uh, exercise intolerance. When I walk a little bit, uh, my or stand or any exertion, my lower leg gets extremely painful. Uh, so I mean, I just want to see if what doctor has to say. I mean, if this uh, what is the high level of uh, activity on the respiratory chain enzyme uh, is could be causing this, or, or what does it mean even? You say high level of activity. High level of activity. I I couldn't get any answer for that. Right. So we, you know, we generally think that um, high level of activity is would not be consistent with a mitochondrial diagnosis. It's low level of activity that would be. Um, but um, you know, it it being one of those one of the one of the you know, problems with electron transport chain enzymology is that um, there haven't been, there has not been any systematic correlation uh, uh, between in, in large series of patients between um, the, you know ultimate genetic findings and um, abnormal mitochondrial disease or abnormal electron transport chain function. Uh, I have a patient um, that had a muscle biopsy and had absolutely normal. Um, enzymology, but when genetic testing became available, we learned that he had MELOS, I'm sorry, MRF, mitochondrial encephalopathy ragged red fiber, and, and, and this was a young man who actually died of his seizures, and he had normal electron transport chain enzymology. So um, the answer is we don't know what elevated um, um, activity levels mean. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Uh, I got another question via email, and this question says, I'm still not clear on what the difference is between a mitochondrial myopathy and a genetic diagnosis. Is mitochondrial myopathy a genetic diagnosis? So I think that's really important to clarify, so let's just um, restate that again. A genetic diagnosis, but then what gets you that diagnosis of mitochondrial myopathy specifically? So... Uh Again, a lot of these terms were developed uh, before anyone ever considered genetics, period. Um, so mitochondrial myopathy is, a, is a, um, a diagnostic term used by physicians that may or may not have um, the genetic information available to them about the patient. So I've diagnosed plenty of my patients as having mitochondrial myopathy because I, as the physician, felt that there was enough clinical evidence and laboratory evidence to make that diagnosis. Genetic testing, uh, the genetic testing showed that they had MELOS, for example, um, the genetic, you know, abnormality that causes MELOS, the mitochondrial DNA for 3243 mutation, uh, then, you know, I, I could say, gosh, uh, I now have genetic proof that my clinical diagnosis was correct. And based on that, the patient could enter the, the study. So I've got to tell you that the vast majority of my patients have a Bruce Cohen diagnosis of mitochondrial disease, or in some cases I will tell them, listen, I don't know what you have, um, but I know you don't have cancer, and I know you don't have all these other treatable things. Let's, for the sake of ease, call it a mitochondrial disease or mitochondrial myopathy or whatnot, and we'll treat you as such. But keep in mind that I may be wrong and that over time we may or may not figure this out. 
And so it's fine to not have a definitive diagnosis and go about treatment. The one caution I make to my patients, other people's patients and doctors, is make sure you haven't missed an untreated thyroid disorder or untreated diabetes. Uh, I, you know, I, just, I, I had this fellow come to see me. I've been taking care of his daughter for 21 years. We had knee loss, maybe longer. And he had moved down to Florida. And he came, he came up to see me as a patient. And I said, well, hey, what's going on? You look like you lost 100 pounds. And he said, well, yeah, I've really been sick. Um, I have muscle weakness, and he did. And he had horrible, you know, peripheral pain. And he had a number of other physical findings. And, gosh, I was sure he had a mitochondrial disease like his daughter had. And I did routine, and, and I said, well, why haven't your doctor done anything about this? And they, he said, well, they assumed it was mitochondrial disease, and they didn't know anything about mitochondrial disease, so they didn't do anything. They just said I had to come up to see you, but the guy didn't have money. Anyway, he made it up to see you. So I got my labs back. His glucose was over 400. He had diabetes. He, went, he was walking around with untreated diabetes for three years. And so we want to make sure we don't miss anything that's, that's treatable. But there's nothing wrong with having a clinical diagnosis of a mitochondrial disease and not ever getting that genetic proof. We just can't get you into a clinical study. Uh, and I hope that that helps. Very important and um, great clarification. So thank you for that, uh, Dr. Cohen. All right, let's take another um, question. I have a question. My name I have a question. Okay, I, I heard I wanted, I, it's, no, it's, it's like a, a race. Go ahead. <laughs> well, this is interesting. Have you ever heard of LED light treatment to stimulate the release of ATP? Light treatment? LED, LED light, treatment? light treat. LED light therapy for, to stimulate the release of ATP. Well, um, there's been... There's been um, uh, a little work done in the use of light therapy for mitochondrial disease. There's certainly nothing FDA approved. Um, and uh, from a theoretical point of view, um, certain waveforms of light may actually be able to treat some different mitochondrial diseases. Uh, unfortunately, you can't get that light to all the mitochondria. You can get it in, you know, to some mitochondria, uh, you know, skin-based, you know, if, if the mitochondria are near the surface uh, and that light can be penetrated. Um, but it's unlikely to think that um, using today's technology, um, we have anything sort of on the horizon for a global effective um, therapy. So again, I know there's been, there's been a little bit of um, uh, really good research. Uh, Dr. Navio was doing it while he had availability to this laser that was uh, owned by the government, but then he got shut out of the ability to use that laser. It was a military laser, and so his um, his work had to end. But there's certainly nothing FDA approved. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Another question via email, and I'll say now we're getting lots and lots of questions. So what I'll do is 
um, compile those, and then we'll um, take away any personal identifying information and we'll post those as comments in addition to the blog so the questions and answers can be relevant for everyone. So please don't fret. If you've sent a question, we don't have a chance to ask it. A good question here is the difference between atrophy and myopathy. This patient says, uh, I've been on bed rest and so I'm being told that I have a lot of muscle atrophy. What's the difference between that and having an actual mitochondrial myopathy? So atrophy will... um Atrophy means muscle breakdown and loss of muscle tissue. So anyone who gets into bed um, starts having, within days, loss of muscle volume. And this is a healthy person or an unhealthy person. And so <clears throat> anyone who's had an operation um, and get, gets laid up for a week or two realizes they get out of bed in a week. And so I, I had abdominal surgery, you know, 25 years ago, and... Um, I just remember it took a month before I, I really started to feel like I could even get to work, um, you know, uh, easily um, just driving. Uh, so that happened, and that happens in anyone, healthy or not. And the older you are or sicker you are on any basis, that just that problem just gets multiplied. Because if you're already weak uh, from some illness, getting weaker may mean the difference of being able to walk and not walk. So that's a process, and, and, and that, there's a mitochondrial basis to that. Um, and um, <clears throat> uh, there's been um, studies done where patients uh, who are people who are perfectly healthy got biopsied um, before and after um, immobilization, and they lost mitochondrial function. And, became, and, and so, um, you know, it's the basis of getting weak after being laid up in bed, there is a mitochondrial basis to that. And some really interesting research about exercise related to mitochondrial function as well for that um, person who asked the question. We do plan to have a session with uh, Dr. Tarnopolsky from Canada who has done a lot of interesting work on exercise in mitochondrial function in 2016. So that's a a great question. He's the guy, and what I just said is, is some of his work. Very good. All right, uh, and, and I'm going to go ahead and take let us start to wrap up, Dr. Cohen, with a final question, asking, we're going back to ragged red fibers. Are ragged red fibers always part of a mitochondrial disease diagnosis or a mitochondrial myopathy? No, ragged red fibers are not. So um, if you go to someone who's older than 50, it's easy to see ragged red fibers in, 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 on people's muscle biopsies. So you just take a person who's getting a hip replacement um, for a bad hip, and you take a piece of their muscle, and they're older than 50, 2% of the, 2% of the fibers would be ragged red fibers. That's just the normal process of getting older, and that helps define getting older. There are plenty of people with mitochondrial diseases that have muscle biopsies that don't have ragged red fibers. And um, it, it ends up that mitochondrial DNA mutations tend to result in ragged red fibers, more than non, more than nuclear mutations, but people with like lupus retinopathy neuropathy due to mitochondrial disease um, don't have ragged fibers, so you don't need ragged fibers to make the diagnosis. Very good. Well, Dr. Cohen, um, you've stayed with us for uh, a little bit of extra time, which we really appreciate because there are a lot of questions. And as promised, um, if anyone has a question that we couldn't address, please send it as via an email to director at mitoaction.org, and Dr. Cohen will work to get those answered and the um, 
the the answer shared as well. I want to, on behalf of the entire patient, parent, um, family community, thank you so much for your time and for the energy you spend, um, you know, looking at your whiteboard, making sure that <laughs> there's lots of options and keeping the ball moving forward for patients and families who suffer from mitochondrial diseases. And thank you for this excellent presentation today. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the group, Dr. Cohen? Just one more thing. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, the Bruce Cohen diagnosis. I, I'm not, I don't know at all. And so I've got plenty of colleagues and friends that are mitochondrial disease doctors, and sometimes they'll say, um, <clears throat> I think this patient has a mitochondrial disease, and I'll say, I don't, and those are just normal, um, you know, physicians don't always agree. I'm not trying to say that I'm right about everything. Uh, we, all have our, we all have our own opinions, but I just want to stress that it's fine for a mitochondrial doctor to say, I think you've got a mitochondrial disease based on the data that I have. And um, most of my patients with that, with mitochondrial disease diagnosis, um, have that based on my uh, integration of all their data. Um, and most of them do not have genetic diagnoses. And I think that's perfectly fine. And you can be a mitochondrial disease patient without that genetic diagnosis. So it, we want to differentiate the points that you know, the reason we're doing the genetic testing uh, and enrolling genetically confirmed patients into these studies is because we know the FDA is going to want that to get the drug approved. Once the drug gets approved, you know, our, our goal would be to treat patients in a broader fashion with or without that genetic testing. Um, having said that, we're also trying to make genetic testing easier and cheaper for our patients to get. So I think I'll conclude with that. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohen, and again, um, appreciate it. And everyone, thank you so much for joining us today and listening to this. This call was recorded, so we'll be posting the archived recording in the iTunes podcast library uh, shortly. So please check that out, and uh, we'll ask you to share the summary with your physicians as well so that we can do our part in educating the community at large about mitochondrial myopathy. Dr. Cohen, I thank you again for joining us, and everyone have a wonderful weekend. And if you're in the U.S., have a happy Thanksgiving as well. And join us on December 4th. We'll be talking about diet and dismotility with a dietitian from ThriveRx. So looking forward to that, and we'll, we'll be sending you more information about it as well. Thank you, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thank you again, thank Dr. You. Cohen. Thank you. Bye-bye.